Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I have to do a quick little apology before we start. Today, we have a guest co-host, and she did a lovely job, but we recorded on an atypical setup, which meant we didn't get a huge chance to test everything before we started, and it looked like our levels were super low when we were trying to record, so I cranked up the microphone on the uh, input side of the computer, and it seems like a lot of our audio isn't great. Like me and my co-host are just a little too close to the microphone. That's okay because our guest sounds perfect. So bear with us. Uh, Appreciate that uh, we did our best to do this and we'll know next time how to do it better. So thank you very much for listening. This is a great episode on next generation gene editing or something like that. New New genomics technologies, whatever they call it in the EU. Here we go. Thank you. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Recently in the EU, there's been a lot of interest in gene editing. It's a technology that's been seen as extremely powerful. And while China and the U.S., other places have invested heavily, the EU seems to stand behind. And, and many other scientists really resent the idea that they're being kept from using a technology that can't be implemented to really help European farmers. So we're going to talk with Emma Kovacs today, and Dr. Kovacs will describe her new report to us, but we have a guest co-host today. So welcome aboard, Ruby Nolan. Hi, my name is Ruby. (laughs) I'm an undergraduate student. I attend the University of Florida. I'm majoring in horticultural sciences, and I have a specialization in organic horticultural systems. I'm also super interested in genetic engineering, all things biotech. And I'm learning about that a little bit right now with Dr. Fulta. Yeah, and, and you're also psychic because I was going to ask you, <laughs> could you give us a little bit about yourself? So, so, so what, 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 are, what are the things that a student studying organic and sustainable uh, horticulture find exciting about genetic engineering? Well, it really depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. There are a lot of students that are studying organic and sustainable don't want to know anything about genetics, or I mean, genetic engineering or biotech. Um, They're very deep into the whole, that's not organic, so we're not going to get our feet dirty in that. And then the other half, not half, less than half of us see it more as a tool, just like anything else, and think it can be used along with organics to further agricultural sustainability around the so what's the long-term plan? I mean, somebody with such diverse interests, you know, how, well, you're kind of a square peg. Where do you, what do you do? I think I'm just going to carve out my own square-shaped circular hole. Um, I would love to look at the best parts of different agricultural systems, the efficiency and GE opportunities of conventional, the environmental stewardship of organic, um, combine different methods to create something that is adaptable at a large scale while still being cost efficient and mostly to work on combating climate change. Very nice. Thanks. Well, for anybody listening, if you want to hire somebody good, (laughs) 
Ruby's got the right stuff. She's the one who's like, like you used to say about Apollo astronauts. You could always pick them out because the people who you knew were going to be successful in whatever they did. So, wow. you know, I think very highly of this one. So, Thanks, um, yeah, you know, that's how it goes. So the good news is, is that she's probably very amenable to the idea of using gene editing in crop production. And, uh, and so that ties in very nicely with our guest today. Our, our guest today is Dr. Emma Kovacs. She's, oops, I'm sorry, where is it? Here's our guest today is Dr. Emma Kovacs. She's a senior food and agriculture analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kovac. Thank you. Hi, nice to be here. So if I can take the first question, if that's okay, I'd like to set the stage. Dr. Kovac, what is the current situation in the EU in regard to transgenic crop technology? The EU has had a de facto ban really since the early 2000s. So there hasn't been any new cultivation of transgenic crops or GMO crops since about 2001. Um, there are small areas of transgenic crops grown in mostly Spain and Portugal, which are kind of legacy crops um, that were approved before this kind of 2001 de facto ban kicked in. Um, but I think something that a lot of people don't realize is that the EU still imports lots of grains, mostly maize and soybean, from transgenic crops that are grown elsewhere in the world. And a lot of that cultivation happens in Brazil. So mainly within the EU, you can't grow GMO or transgenic crops, um, but there is import of grains, but mostly for um, animal feed, not for human consumption. That's really interesting. So basically, you can't grow it yourself, but a lot of EU citizens are still consuming it and it's still sold in stores over there. People are consuming it indirectly through the animals that they eat. But um, right. yeah, so most of the, the importation of um, products of transgenic crops is for animal feed. What is the current policy towards more site-directed mutagenesis strategies like CRISPR? In the EU, uh, CRISPR and site-directed immunogenesis strategies overall are called NGTs, which stands for New Genomic Techniques. And it's, you know, every area kind of has its own terminology, which I think gets really confusing for people, unfortunately. Currently in the EU, all crops that are altered using NGTs are treated the same as transgenic crops um, or GMOs. In 2018, um, the EU passed legislation that actually specified this, because before that it was kind of, um, people were kind of assuming that was the case, but it wasn't official. So in 2018, the EU passed legislation that did specify that existing regulations for transgenic or GMO crops would also apply to NGTs. Um, but then the big news is that in June of this year of 2023, the European Commission released proposed regulations to exempt some crops um, bred using NGTs from existing regulations for GMOs. Yeah, and we'll touch on that in just a second. I, I always object to when they use a term like new genomic technology because in a few years it's not new anymore. <laughs> and then we don't know what we're talking about. You know, and they, they did this with like, you know, uh, next generation sequencing. I mean, you know, so I always like to just call it what it is site directed mutagenesis, you know, but that's just me. But where does all the opposition come from? I've had so many scientists come to my laboratory over the last decade who just just resent the idea that they can't use the technology that other scientists around the world can with the noble idea of increasing 
food security and environmental stewardship for European farmers. So where does the pushback come from? You know, in some ways, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer. Um, But there are certainly, I mean, I agree that there's huge support from scientists in the EU and in most of the world for the use of um, gene editing in crop plants. There's tons of reports and consensus statements to that effect um, from uh, scientists in the EU included. Um, But generally, the regulatory system in the EU, not just for um, crops or plants, but for medicines, for um, other things, just generally takes a really precautionary approach, which is basically just being very careful to prevent potential harm, even when there's no clear or supported pathway by which that harm might take place. And that is different than a lot of the other countries that we're seeing um, that are passing regulations that treat um, gene editing as different from GMOs. And there are lots of other products and medicines that aren't approved for use in the EU, but are used um, in many other countries in the world. So it's kind of It's a more widespread ethos than um, just in kind of agriculture, you know, crop production. But I think there's there's been a lot of historical developments that have kind of led us to where we are. And it's hard to say exactly what contributed. But yeah, so they do this without risk assessment. They just go, what is a precautionary decision? And so they must be really against the idea of mutagenesis breeding, right? Yeah, that's a common perspective that I often hear from scientists, because when you're a scientist, you usually have the technical knowledge to understand that once you make a mutation in DNA, no matter what technique you use, those mutations can can end up looking entirely identical. Um, But in the EU, mutagenesis via radiation or the application of chemicals is not regulated in the same way as GMOs, whereas, as we've said, gene editing is considered the same as GMOs, even though you can make mutations using radiation or using gene editing that can end up looking the same. And I think that's in some ways similar to the opposition we see to transgenic crops. Um, Scientists kind of understand that if you take a gene from one species and put it into another species, like once you take a gene out of an organism, in a lot of ways, it's just a collection of the letters A, C, T, and G. Um, but there's really opposition to that idea of doing something unnatural or that couldn't happen in nature without human intervention, which is, you know, a little bit of a false dichotomy. So all of this concern in the EU seems sourced from a bit of a nebulous, from what I understand so far. Does this policy then apply not just to crop plants, but also animals, microbes, and maybe fermentation techniques, other applications in gene editing, GMOs, mutagenesis, that sort of thing? Opposition to genetic modification or gene editing in animals is also, is, you know, even more extensive, I would say, than in crop plants. Um, And That, you know, is generally like there are a lot of approaches to um, kind of raising livestock that are used in um, the U.S. and lots of other countries around the world that are not used in the EU. So 
they definitely like have a different approach to um, food production when it involves animals overall. Um, but that certainly extends to genetic modification and gene editing. But in the EU, there are lots of products that are made using genetically modified microbes in an industrial setting. And part of the reason that that is allowed in a way that <clears throat> those technologies aren't allowed for use in crop plants is because that cultivation is confined. It's like in a vat inside a building. And the products that are used from that don't contain any DNA from the microbes that were used to produce them. So they're very, very processed. Um, and yeah, so I think the the reasons for kind of the different approaches to gene editing or genetic modification in crop plants and animals and microbes for industrial use um, are very clear. But then obviously, you know, that doesn't mean we agree that those assessments of risk are necessarily accurate. What would you say that the landscape is like in the rest of the world for this technology? And is the EU already falling behind? Yes, <laughs> the EU is definitely already <laughs> falling behind, <laughs> um, pretty far behind. So um, Argentina was really the first country worldwide to um, pass new regulations that exempted some gene edited crops from existing GMO regulations. And that was around 2015. So it's only been, you know, eight years um, for other countries to take similar approaches, but a lot of countries have followed Argentina's example, um, including the US, Brazil, Canada, Paraguay, Ecuador, Chile, Colombia, Japan, Australia, and Israel. That's not um, all of the countries that we're talking about, but um, there are also many other countries that are in the process of considering similar regulations, which the EU is now one of um, you know, those sets of countries, obviously. Um, and so as more and more countries take regulatory approaches to site-directed mutagenesis that are similar to Argentina, which kind of set the standard of exempting gene-edited crops that could have been produced using conventional breeding from GMO regulations, the EU keeps falling farther and farther behind as more and more countries follow that example. But what are the effects of this for EU farmers and EU consumers? So for EU farmers, this means less access to improved crop varieties. Um, obviously, as I said, there's only legacy cultivation of some transgenic crops in the EU. Um, and those include, you know, herbicide tolerant crops and insect resistant crops, which are grown on massive scales in other countries in the world. Um, mainly Brazil, the U.S., and Canada. So those are already tools that farmers in the EU haven't, have, haven't had access to that farmers in many other countries around the world have been using for decades. Um, so that's already been a huge impact of the EU's um, de facto ban on uh, GMOs in agriculture. And then um, there are many gene-edited crops that are in development currently, um, that have important traits like disease resistance and drought tolerance and heat tolerance, which are obviously big concerns with the increasing impacts of climate change on agriculture. Um, and so the, the, the tools that EU farmers are missing out on, that number of tools and the advantages they come with is only going to grow as time goes on. 
And how does that affect the European Union's sustainability goals? Because they seem to be have so much environmental concern, but now can't necessarily use the best tool to get there. Yes, that is that's certainly a big concern. Um, so the farm to fork strategy is a big part of this, um, and that's somewhere where the EU has targets for expansion of organic crop production, which according to someone like me, would kind of go against the goals of decreasing the environmental impacts of agriculture. Um, And one of the main reasons for that is that organic crop production uh, is often lower yielding than non-organic crop production. And the lower yields you get out of crops, the more land you have to use to grow them. And land use is a huge impact of agriculture on the environment. Um, So there are some real contradictions between the EU's approach to um, organic farming and the kind of opposition to the use of a lot of inputs like fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides. There's a lot of contrast between that and then these environmental and sustainability goals that, you know, it's unclear whether the EU really has the tools that they need in order to meet those goals if they're rejecting kind of all of these agricultural technologies that can really help reduce the impacts of agriculture on the environment. Yeah, it's kind of a weird hypocrisy that drives me nuts. And I, I know it does many scientists over there. So we're speaking with Dr. Emma Kovacs. She's a senior food and agricultural analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. This is the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we're speaking with Dr. Emma Kovac. She's a senior food and agricultural analyst at the Breakthrough Institute. And we're talking about the recent policy changes that may be in store with regard to gene editing in the EU. And Dr. Kovac was the author of a recent report, along with several other authors, that really described the current state of the situation as well as uh, where it might be going. So, um, could you give us a little background on who the other authors were and kind of a brief synthesis of the report? Yeah. So um, I worked on this report along with Mark Linus from the Alliance for Science, and then a couple other people from the Breakthrough Institute also contributed. So Dan Rato and Christopher Gambino. Um, so Uh, Mark and I and Dan really um, came up with the idea and the approach for the report. Um, And the Alliance for Science and Breakthrough really worked together to get it out the door. Um, And so the main thing that we're looking at is um, quantifying the economic cost of the European Union's opposition to new genomic techniques, um, what they call NGTs in the food system, as well as other sectors. So we're not just looking at agriculture. And what we find is that when you look over a decade, there's a potential 3 trillion um, euro economic cost of that opposition in the EU. 
So we look specifically at growth potential that could be delivered by NGTs in uh, three areas, agriculture and food, materials, chemicals, and energy, and human health. And we look at the um, foregone economic benefits on a yearly basis, which we estimated range from 171 to 335 billion euros annually. And that's looking yearly from 2020 to 2040. And so we find that um, those obviously economic benefits that the EU is foregoing by not adopting NGTs are really massive. And those economic benefits um, come from things like lower costs of production, improved quality of products and services, health improvements in humans, and reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, really good. There's, but there's more than one organization in the EU that has a regulatory oversight or at least an advisory oversight. So what do organizations like the European Food Safety Association say about NGTs? The EFSA um, is... It's interesting because obviously you see this overall opposition to um, GMOs and NGTs in the EU, but a lot of the agencies that are part of regulating those technologies have actually said in some report somewhere or in a statement that there are no unique or new risks associated with the use of NGTs in crop plants. So there's kind of this contradiction between the political situation and what the scientists at some of those agencies, including EFSA, um, know about the technology. So it's really, um, there is a lot of, there's a lot of political weight to these decisions that really impacts the economics of a lot of these countries, especially ones that um, rely on a lot of organic production. Like Austria is one of the biggest opponents of this proposed change in regulations. And Austria has the biggest percentage of organic production in the EU. So yeah, it's really a, there's a lot of political, political stuff going on. Which is really too bad because I don't like when the science can't transcend the politics. And that for me, I think about this 10 years ago, we didn't have site-directed gene editing. It was one of these things that we wish we had. And sure, there were little hints that this thing may be on the horizon, but it wasn't practically in everybody's lab until the last you know, four, five, six years at, the, at, the, at best. And so trying to project the losses on a process and a technology that's only accelerating you know, if I'm the EU, I got to get in line pretty quick because do we even have a crystal ball that's good enough to be able to make predictions about what's going to be happening 10 or 15 years down the line in the EU? Yeah, so I think part of what made part of what made that possible for us to do in this report is that um, we used data that was looking at technologies that could become commercially viable by 2050. And so like you're saying, a lot of labs have only had gene editing really in use for four or five years. But when you think about the entire life cycle of a new product or a new application of any technology, including NGTs, the process of actually commercializing um, that product is much longer than the process of saying, oh, you know, we want to improve the flavor of this um, crop product and we know what gene contributes to that flavor and we'll use um, gene editing to make a change in that gene. So 
because we're only looking forward to about 2040, that's, you know, a little more than 15 years in the future. And though there absolutely could be a huge revolution in the next 10 years, like we are having currently with CRISPR-Cas gene editing, um, the impact of that on commercialized products would most likely in many cases be beyond the 15 year mark. So we certainly don't know all of the applications of these technologies that are going to come up. Um, but if we're not projecting too, too far ahead, then we probably have a pretty good idea of what's actually going to be able to get on the market and start having an impact um, in people's lives in the next 15 years. Although we can't see into the next 10 to 15 years of benefits down the line, what are some of the current applications of gene editing in crops that could potentially benefit farmers, consumers, um, regular people in the EU if they were able to be incorporated into agriculture starting now? Yeah, so um, if we're starting right now, um, as I think probably a lot of people know, there are very few crops on the market currently that were created using CRISPR-Cas gene editing. Um, so we really, if we're looking at crops, we really have tomatoes that have higher levels of GABA and mustard greens that taste less bitter. Um, and then with older gene, te gene editing technologies, we have a couple more like herbicide resistant canola and high oleic oil soybean. And then with animals, there's fast growing puffer fish and sea bream. So those are kind of the main products of gene editing and agriculture right now. So if you look at those, obviously the environmental benefits are very limited. Most of them are consumer products. But if you look at um, developments and research on gene editing that's happening right now, the types of products that are being developed are much broader than that. Um, so there's things like maize and um, soybean that are drought resistant um, and salt tolerant soybeans and heat tolerant maize. So those are all things that are obviously really important for our warming, drying world. Um, and then another category I think that's really important in terms of environmental benefits and um, kind of impacts of agriculture that farmers are trying to deal with are um, cereal crops that can better absorb nitrogen from the soil. Um, and then there's also disease-resistant crops. So the applications of gene editing that have not been commercialized yet range really broadly. And if you look at um, kind of an intermediate step, so not things that are just in a lab and not things that are commercialized, but things that have gotten to the step of being um, submitted to a federal agency for regulation, like the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there are some herbicide-resistant crops there that were created using gene editing, but there's also non-browning banana um, Soybeans with improved flavor and maize with different plant architecture that can increase yield. And then there's also work on pennycress to kind of make it a new oilseed crop um, and tomatoes with fruit that stays firm longer. So all that is to say that there's a really broad range of products that are in development, but what we've seen on the market so far is very limited. And there's obviously a lot of reasons for that that we can talk about, but I just like to make that very clear because people are often asking me, 
oh, you know, if CRISPR is so exciting, where are all the products? And, you know, <laughs> the technology hasn't been around for that long. Like Kevin said, it's been in some people's labs for only four or five years. So I think when we say CRISPR is, you know, faster and better than genetic modification or transgenesis, people kind of go like, okay, well, it's been a few years. Where is everything? It's like, well, it's fast, but it's not that fast. <laughs> well, you know, the same people who are saying, you know, where are your products? Where are they? Are the same people who spent the last 30 years trying to defeat them and keep them out of the market. And so that's another really important part. And along that line, how do you push back against the argument that by enabling new technologies, you're just going to enable uh, the big multinational seed companies to make all the money and, and even strangle out the small producer or small seed company? Yeah, so I think it's very important to make clear that gene editing has the potential to kind of level the playing field and do really the opposite of what people are worried about, which is make those big, you know, four ag biotech companies um, more rich and powerful. Um, and the stuff that I'm working on is trying to make sure that actually happens. Um, and so we, uh, like I said, there's a lot of products in development that haven't come out yet that are, many of those are from smaller um, companies or um, labs at universities that have not traditionally commercialized um, transgenic or GMO crops. Um, but I think the things that we have to address to make sure that the technology really reaches its potential and that, um, you know, CRISPR-Cas technology remains accessible to a wide variety of developers, including small ones, um, is the regulatory system. So like I said, Argentina kind of started this wave of treating NGTs or um, gene editing differently than GMOs. And there's a general consensus on that approach, but the differences that seem small between countries that have, you know, agree on the big picture are actually very important because they impact trade between those countries that have different regulations and the costs associated with those seemingly small regulatory differences between countries can get big really fast. Um, so that's one barrier for small developers of gene edited crops. There's also this kind of like softer barrier of public perception. Um, a lot of a lot of scientists that have been around for not even that long um, remember the days when you know, we were all just talking about uh, all of these GMO or transgenic crops that had been developed and were just sitting in people's labs because they couldn't get through the regulatory process. And there is certainly widespread public opposition to GMOs still um, that we've seen keep products like um, golden rice from getting commercialized in developing countries where it could make a big difference. And there's absolutely a lot of fear from scientists and developers of gene edited crops that gene editing will end up being seen similarly to GMOs and that a lot of that opposition will um, come to bear on gene edited crops as well. So I think there's some hesitance from developers to kind of be one of the first um, have one of the first products that's released commercially um, because it's still, I think, pretty up in the air as to how people will respond. Um, so I think that's that's kind of another reason that we haven't seen a lot of products yet. Thinking about all of this biotech that is sitting in people's labs with untapped potential, 
the European Commission released that proposal last summer that you mentioned, I think you said July of, was it 2023? Yeah, July 2023. Yeah, 2023. Yes, this past summer just happened, um, initiating a change in regulations of GE crops. What exactly came forth in that proposal? Yeah, okay. So hold on to your hats or whatever. Um, So (laughs) the current regulatory system, like I explained, um, that uh, regulates GMO crops has been around for about two decades for the large part. And in 2018 was specified that NGTs um, would fall under those same regulations. So this new proposal from this year, this summer, um, exempts some types of gene edited crops from those existing GMO regulations, but not others. So it divides products into three categories, category one, two, and three NGTs. So category one NGTs are those that could have been produced using conventional breeding. The definition of what that actually means varies a lot between countries, um, not within the EU, but outside the EU with other countries that have passed regulations. Category two uh, NGTs are not transgenic, but they fall into this gray area of probably couldn't have been produced using conventional breeding. But unfortunately, that uh, that line is blurrier than we than regulators treat it to be. Um, and so, category one NGTs, those that could have been produced using conventional breeding in the EU, will no longer be subject to existing GMO rules. But there is a new process that's being proposed that is basically, um, in theory, a quick verification of the type and category of genetic change to confirm that, yes, indeed, this does fall under this category one NGT um, group. And then if the European Food Safety uh, Agency confirms this is a category one NGT, um, then the variety will be registered in a public database of gene edited crops or category one NGTs. So compared to other regulatory systems, um, the definition of what could have been produced using conventional breeding is relatively similar and kind of in line with this emerging global consensus. Um, And then important to know in the EU, all new plant varieties um, get registered under in a kind of a different database than this new proposed database. So Category 1 NGTs would still fall under that, which includes testing of the traits in multiple locations over multiple years to show that they are indeed novel and deserve to be called, you know, their own variety. And then importantly, um, which, you know, a lot of people are frustrated with, even though these Category 1 NGTs would not be subject to existing GMO regulations, they would still be banned from organic production. Um, which, you know, I think is mainly a political concession. Um, And then category two NGTs um, are still subject to a lot of the existing GMO regulations, um, which include like traceability and labeling requirements, but there would be certain adaptations that would lighten the load a little bit and have kind of a more targeted authorization and risk assessment for those category two NGTs. And then category three NGTs are basically transgenic and the regulation for those remains the same. And then one more important caveat is that for category one and two NGT plants, 
national opt-outs would be prohibited under this proposal, which is a really big deal um, because part of the way that we have this de facto ban in the EU now is that many countries say, well, we're just not going to grow that. And then there's this kind of, because there's so much trade within um, the bloc, um, that creates a lot of complications for countries that may be less opposed to growing transgenics, um, but really aren't going to go the extra mile to make that happen. Um, so, you know, this is a step for the EU proposing regulations that bring it much more in line with other countries in the world. Um, but there's still a lot that needs to shake out. Um, and there are some parts of the regulations that are a little unclear and people are worried kind of leave room for political interference in the process of, you know, deciding what constitutes a category one NGT and getting that exemption actually in place. I know you just said that it's not for sure yet, but how do scientists make the differentiation between this is a category one NGT, it could be achieved through traditional breeding methods and what is the general public sentiment about Cat 1's, Cat 1, like a Cat 1 hurricane, just little <laughs> changes that are happening? And uh, do people feel differently about those than they do about uh, the big old transgenesis editing? Yeah, so um, this proposal, like you said, is just a very first, well, it's not the first step, it's a step in a many years long process, but it's still many steps from uh, this proposal or anything like it actually becoming law. Um, so it needs to be discussed and approved by the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers from individual EU member states. And there's really a range of positions among EU member states. And a lot of that is has not settled yet. Um, some countries are generally supportive of the use of NGTs in agriculture, but have not specifically voiced support for the proposal. Um, so in July, after the proposal was released, Spain and Italy and France voiced support. France especially is surprising. Um, and it is unclear, however, whether they would actually vote for new legislation uh, either the way that it's written now or with certain modifications. And then there are even more confusing things like Greece's rural development and food minister talked about the benefits of NGTs, but then opposes the commission's proposal for relaxing regulations and doesn't have a clear counter proposal. So there's a lot that I think people are still really figuring out. Um, countries that are opposed, um, Hungary and Austria, I said like Austria has a much larger proportion of organic farming than a lot of other countries. So it makes sense that they're opposed. They both had very explicit criticisms and Germany was raising concerns about the patentability of NGTs and the, you know, Germany's green party um, has historically been very anti-GMO, but interestingly, Germany's green minister was at least showing a willingness to compromise in theory and not reject the proposal completely and to address some of the divisions within his own government coalition. And then other countries that also shared some of these concerns that were expressed by Germany and Hungary and Austria, um, but were 
saying that they're theoretically willing to move forward and find practical solutions that work for everyone um, are Cyprus and Luxembourg and Lithuania. So there's really a range there um, between countries that are uh, voicing support, but really haven't said what that actually is going to look like for them. Um, and really, you know, the proposal came out in July and then it was European vacation season. And then in September and October, we really just actually got into this um, discussion. Like there were a lot of events in late October um, discussing NGTs and agriculture. One of them included a discussion of our report. So things are really just starting to speed up now. I, I think Estonia is on board as of this week too. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I think I saw that recently too. So if anybody wanted to get a copy of your report or read it, I, I would really recommend that you read the report, have it on the tip of your tongue, not only for communicating in social media, but also with others, friends in the EU, because it really does quantify the potential losses very carefully. It shows the economic impacts. And it also goes through a really nice setup of the current state of NGTs in production in other places. So worth taking a look. So uh, if people wanted to find it, where would they look online? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, so you can either find it on the Breakthrough Institute website or the Alliance for Science website, the two organizations that put it together. Um, so that's the breakthrough.org or allianceforscience.org. Very good. And if people wanted to follow you or the Breakthrough Institute online, where would they follow you on, say, Twitter or other, other social media? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter at Emma Kovac, um, and most of my work is on the Breakthrough website, which is thebreakthrough.org. And then one other thing I wanted to mention related to this is that um, we co-authored a paper in Trends in Plant Science um, on the restrictions on biotechnology in the EU that looks at the impact um, specifically in terms of greenhouse em gas emissions and land use. So if you're interested in kind of more details of the environmental impacts, um, you can you can look at that as well. Very nice. Is there, and I should mention on Twitter that it is at E-M-M-A-K-O-V-A-K. Before we let you go, Dr. Kovac, if you could get in a time machine and travel back 15 years how would you redesign these regulations? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, okay, so if I get in my time machine, um, I would still think something that we all say now, which is that regulations should foc on, focus on assessing the types of risks that a product can pose, regardless of how it was developed. So as we've been talking about this whole time, there is this emerging global consensus that if a gene edited product, you know, even if it's created using CRISPR-Cas or whatever, if it could have been produced using conventional breeding, we'll argue about how to define that. Um, but if it could have been produced using conventional breeding, then it will not fall under existing GMO regulations. But that on its own upfront very clearly goes against the idea that the way a product was developed shouldn't be part of the regulatory consideration. And there's this broad scientific consensus that we've talked about that neither the process of genetic modification or transgenesis or gene editing or CRISPR-Cas um, in crop plants poses new or unique risks. So in theory, we shouldn't sort those products based on whether they were created using CRISPR or 
conventional breeding or um, radiation mutagenesis. So in reality, regulations are often based on precedent. And what we often call that in this case is a history of safe use. And so a lot of regulatory agencies are saying conventional breeding has a long history of safe use, which it does. And arguably transgenics at this point have at least 20 years of a history of safe use, um, which, you know, is maybe not considered long enough, whatever. But if you think about why conventional breeding has a history of safe use, it's not because the technology itself is inherently safe. It's because breeders do a lot of testing (laughs) on new varieties of crops to make sure that they perform as expected in different environments, um, that they're not, you know, creating some new allergen that's going to impact people. And so because we have all of those systems of testing new plant and crop varieties in place, there's no reason to think that these other technologies will create crops that cannot be affirmed as safe using those established methods of testing. Um, And so like in the EU, there's this registry of new plant, new crop varieties um, that applies to conventionally bred crops. And you have to show in multiple years, in multiple locations, that your crop variety um, does well and has a novel characteristic that means that it should be considered a new variety. Um, So in theory, I would like to see regulations that don't sort based on whether there's a transgene or whether CRISPR was used or just, um, you know, mutagenesis using radiation. Um, But I know even in my, after I've traveled 15 years back in my time machine, I know that that is unfortunately unrealistic based on (laughs) regulatory approaches that have existed for much longer than 15 years. But I think there are ways that we could get closer to that than we are now, but that that's not really the direction we're going in, unfortunately. Well, the thing I always remind my students about is that when you say there's a history of safe use from traditional breeding, it's that the people who created products through history that were poisonous or problematic, those breeders didn't pass those seeds forward. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you either took the thing that was giving you an allergy and threw it away or it killed you. And so there was uh, early breeding has potential risks. And but it is a very good point to remember. And I'm glad you brought that up. But uh, Dr. Emma Kovac, thank you very much for joining us today. And please keep us posted if you'd like to join us again. Um, I'm sure Ruby wouldn't mind joining us again. You, I'd love to. You do it again? Absolutely. Nice job so far. I think I did okay for the first time. I think you did great. And you're also thinking about starting your own podcast. It's more about maybe the practical farming side. Yes, I am. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Thanks. Any, any idea what you might call it? Yes, I'm thinking about calling it sustainable. So like the word sustainable, but instead of able at the end, it's a world because those are, that's pretty much my goal long-term and that's where I want to be, what I want to work on. I know that I'm still learning and I'm pretty young. I'm just an undergrad, but if anyone wants to follow along on that journey and learn with me, that's what I want to be there for. Very nice. And your and your mastery of media is now underway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Kovac. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, great talking with you. Thanks, Dr. Kovac.
And for listeners listening, thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes or the place where you consume uh, podcast media, and be sure to share this with a friend. It's especially somebody in the EU. It's really important that the people who are in the EU, who are ultimately the beneficiaries, along with their farmers and environment, really start to get excited about the potential of these technologies and working with their political bodies to try to ensure positive change. Uh, there's a lot more of us than there are of the folks who are pushing back against it. It's just we need to be a little bit more vocal about the good things technology can be can bring as they are about the potential downsides. This is a Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.